So we are in a series called Love Hate, and I shared with you the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. I think I even made a slide for it. I did. The last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes last week, and I, I really like this, these two verses, almost like it, it functions well as like a, a, a catch verse for the whole series. Um, the end of the matter, all has been heard, and here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of humankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing whether good or evil. And if everything will be exposed and everything will be made clear and all of our secrets, are, all of our skeletons kind of come falling out of the closet in front of God, whom we perhaps in our mind have think we've, we've held them from, how important is it then for us to love what God loves and to hate what God hates? To draw near to the things that God loves. If our, if our, if our movement had a creed, it doesn't, but if it, if it did, the closest thing would be the words that Peter speaks when Jesus asked the, questions, who do you, the question, who do you say, who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? And Peter says, good job. That was great. Thank you. You made my heart like lift or expand or something. Yeah, one of the things that we often forget because your lives are so busy, I know your lives are so busy, and I know you've got so much going on, and you've got so many things pulling at you, and, and you're listening to 15 podcasts a day, I mean, all this stuff, right, that's happening, and so it's easy for us to forget that when we use the phrase Christ, it's the Greek word of the Hebrew word for king, Jesus the king. We declare he is the king, and he is God in flesh on earth. And the best thing to do when you have a king over you is to love what the king loves and to hate what the king hates. So I want to dive into a chunk of scripture that we're going to be engaging with over the next several weeks, and it is in Proverbs chapter 6. So if you brought your Bible, feel free to open there. Proverbs chapter 6. Um, if you're going to use the Pew Bible like I am, it's on page 531. So if you want to use the Pew Bible, make it easy for, on yourself, 531. That's where we'll be. Now, I, I want to kind of give a little intro into the book of Proverbs and in, in wisdom liter in, literature in general because it's really important we understand what's going on in this. There's different kinds of, of writings in the Bible. The Bible is a collection of books and letters and laws and wisdom. And Proverbs is what we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. Now it's important to understand that wisdom literature is not the same kind of literature as law. Law is prescriptive. It says, if you do this, you will get this. Wisdom literature is trying to give you wisdom. So it's less prescriptive and more proverbial. So you probably have heard, if you've, if you've been to church on a Father's Day or a Mother's Day, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old... You guys are so engaged today. I, I don't even know what to do right now. That's amazing. Yes, exactly. Except for how true is that? Is the proverbist saying, if you raise that child in the church, that child will never leave the church? <laughs> there comes a point when... What's that? They come back. <laughs> they come back. We hope so. There comes a point where Emery and Ezri have to make their own choices. They're either going to love what God loves and hate what God hates, or they're not. It's in their court. Proverbs is laying out for us the best way. 
What is the best way? The best way is to raise up that child in the right way because that gives the strongest opportunity for that child to make the right decisions because you've given them all of the things that they need to succeed. But eventually it's up to a child to succeed. One of the other things that we do wrong when we enter into, um, enter into the proverbial, the wisdom literature, is we take it to be universal truths. And, and here I kind of point my finger at, at, at the, the venerable Joel Osteen, who I really don't have anything against. Uh, but one of the things that he does in his preaching to kind of hit the audience as big as he can is use Proverbs because you can kind of pull them out and lay them down and it sounds like it's true for everyone. And in some ways it is because Proverbs describes for us the grain of the universe. But, but... Proverbs is built upon this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, no wisdom will do you ultimately any good because of this passage right here. You will not keep God's laws. You will not keep God's wisdom. You will not walk in God's ways. If there isn't in in your mind, I have to answer for this. And if you take nothing else away from what I say today, maybe this is the most important thing that you could walk away from. You will answer for it. I will answer for it. There is a day of judgment. And there is, as Paul described for us, one who takes away the weight of our sin and gives to us the good way. And the good way is found in fearing God and then drawing ourselves close to those things which God Loves. So Proverbs 6, verse 16 and, four, and 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. You can underline those if you've got a pew Bible, still underline it. Things the Lord hates, things that are an abomination to him. I know this isn't PC talk. But this series has already kind of not been that way. So no surprises there. But I I want to point out this so that you recognize that I'm not making these things up. That God feels strongly about certain things. Very strongly about certain things. And we're going to kind of move through this chunk of scripture verse by by verse. So we'll be here for a few few weeks. But I uh, I like how important this is. How important it is to, here's the first thing that God hates. Something that is an abomination to him. It's, it's disgusting. It's vile. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Now this is a, a Hebrew phrase. It's two words. The first word that appears in Hebrew is eyes. And the second word is something like, like high. Like lofty or high. So you can kind of imagine. We got those eyes up. We would say something like, look down your nose. You got those eyes are high. Which I kind of love because it means that for 3,000 years, our body language hasn't changed. We still use the same phrases. We still have the same ideas. Those high eyes are lifted up. And you all know what is being grasped at here. What's being described here. A person who's full of pride. Somebody who thinks that they are better than somebody else or something else. It's pride. Now, it's interesting to me that as the proverbist, <laughs> Solomon who wrote many of them, or whoever's sitting down to write these down, and pens, you know what, I, I need to write down now, that the Lord is telling me to write down six things he hates, seven things that are abomination to him, and he starts with pride. Isn't that interesting? He could have started 
any number of places, but he goes right, right to pride. Might bring to mind other verses, other verses that, that describe the opposite of this. That, so if pride is the thing that God hates, things that, that's an abomination to him, somebody who's proud, what's the opposite of that? What is it that God loves? God loves humility. Those people who are humble. We might think of this great little succinct verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He, that is God, has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before God? I think of another passage from Philippians chapter 2, and I think last week Brian shared this. Was it last week that you did this communion meditation? Yeah, that's what I thought. Shared this with us last week for the communion meditation. This is such a lovely, lovely section of scripture where Paul is writing to this church just like I might write you all a letter and say, you know, if I go away for a few years and I write you a letter and say, hey, I hear you've got a problem. And we know that the problem was actually two, two old biddies who are fighting with one another. It's one of the big problems in the church. Paul calls them to unity in chapter 4. But he doesn't call them out by name until chapter 4. He begins with Jesus in chapter 2. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of pride, but in humility, consider other people better than yourself, more significant than yourselves. And then he goes on to to give this what we think might have been an ancient hymn, this great little uh, hymn about Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, having all of the authority and power of God, having the ability to exert all of his godness, didn't do any of that, but rather did what? Humbled himself. Took on the nature of a servant. Said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many people. God then is is not just telling us that he loves humility. He is demonstrating to us what humility looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. And laying down for us a visual example of powerful humility... And a hatred of pride because Jesus is always, always talking against, uh, speaking against these scribes and Pharisees, these people who are in high positions of power. He, he looks at them and he calls them out. He calls power out and says, you are unjust. You are unjust. He lives out this for us. Now, I think that, it's, it, it, that pride is brought forward first because I believe that pride is kind of the hinge on which the rest of our sins swing. Pride is a central issue. Uh, this is also appears in the literature of the law. So we're kind of here in the wisdom literature towards the, the beginning. We have the books of the law. So God says, I need you to do this. I need you not to do that. And I'll give you a little text from there. This is from Leviticus. Now, Leviticus 26 is a description that follows the laws. The laws have been laid out. God says, do this, don't do this. And then he says, if you, if you keep my commandments, I'll bless you because I'm your God and you're keeping the covenant that we've made. We've made an agreement. I'm your God. You're my people. You're walking in my ways. And if you don't, what will happen? Curses will come. I will remove my protections. I'm stepping back. If you want to be on your own, be on your own. And he will uh, bring and uh, allow these things to happen. So this is, this is the context 
of this chapter and these verses here. If you do not listen to me and do all the commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if, if your soul abhors my, my rules, they're an abomination, right? That same root word. So that you will not do my commandments, but break my covenant. This is the important piece right here. I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. The pride of your power. Because there comes a point where they will say, as we know through, through the history of the scriptures, they will say, we don't need you, God. We don't need you. We have enough power of our own. We don't need you. And I think we do this today. I mean, I think this is, this is, this is we could talk about this at a national level. We could talk at this, uh, about this at an economic level. We could talk about this at a personal level. But we have this sentence that we, we say. We say, God, I know what I should do. I know you tell me to do whatever, fill in the blank. Or not do whatever, fill in the blank. But... And that little conjunction right there is a code word for pride. It says, I will be king. I will decide. I will be lord and commander over my own life. Psalm 10 gives a great picture. If you want to read something that kind of describes for you this position, it does it uh, in, in a poetic form. Um, in the pride of his face, the wicked do not see him, seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And here is not kind of Richard Dawkins, there is no God, although that also applies here. This is more of, as verse 10 says, uh, God has forgotten, his, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see. In other words, there comes a point where we disagree with the wisdom we read in Ecclesiastes and we say, there, there isn't going to be a day of accounting. There isn't going to come a point, there's not going to be a point where I have to answer for what I've done. I will be the king and lord over my own life. So pride is, is at the root of disobedience. You know, it's interesting um, because, especially in light of last week's uh, sermon, where I didn't talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's kind of a place we often go, um, and there's plenty to talk about there, but as you, if, you, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's some pretty horrific things going on there. But if you read Ezekiel, who, who describes the sin of Sodom, Ezekiel begins by describing the sin of Sodom as pride. What was Sodom's sin? Pride. Why did God rain down fire and sulfur and destroy it? Pride. Now, are there other things that Sodom was up to that were sinful? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Lots of them. But what lay at the core of it? What lay at the root of it? Pride. Pride was at the root of it. Pride is often tied to positions of wealth and of power. If you read the scriptures, the scriptures... I read a lot of the Bible... And when you read a lot of the Bible, you kind of get an inflated idea of what Israel was. Because they're the central character, right? God is the central character. You're sort of your main supporting character are the Jews, Israelites. And so you begin to think like they're really big and important. Man, they're Delaware. They're meaningless. Hope no one here is from Delaware. Just like, I know nothing about Delaware. Just, you know, I mean, like we, we, it, Israel is almost nothing on the world scheme. 
They are small and insignificant, and most of their stories are about them getting run over by more powerful imperial forces, whether it's economic or whether it's, 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 it's war, whatever it is, that is what they experience. And so the book we call the Bible, the collection of, of, of letters and writings in here is for people who are downtrodden. People who are suffering, people who are hurting, people who recognize, man, I need God to intervene for me. Because I can't do it. And so the scriptures are are really often condemning these large national powers, especially the prophets. There's this really interesting book called Obadiah. It's just a small little, little prophetic word about about how God is going to destroy a country called Edom. And I was thinking about this in, in terms of, of, of what, uh, what we're talking about today, pride and his great power. Uh, and here's a little chunk here of it. This, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. And here he lays out some of his, his, his uh, words against them. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who lived in the cracks clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart who will bring me down to the ground though you soar aloft like the eagles though your nest is set among the stars for there I will bring you down declares the Lord thus says the Lord concerning Edom we could easily replace Edom with any number of characters we have today President Trump Kim Jong-un, their insanity back and forth. We could lay down the Harvey Weinstein or the $36 million that uh, Bill O'Reilly has just paid because he sexually harassed or abused or did something to some young lady. How God takes the proud and the mighty, he reveals their sins, and he brings them down. And it's a lot of fun and cathartic to point out whichever one of those people you don't like and say, God's got your number. And that's where it gets dangerous for us because certainly God's got their number. But he's got yours too. And one of the dangerous places for us is that while we largely, I think, in this room are neither rich nor powerful nor famous Given American standards, I don't know that lifestyles are rich and famous. Wow, that's really old. Whatever the equivalent is today. <laughs> Cribs, but that's probably old too. No, I don't even know what it is. We, we're, not, we're, not, we're not Hollywood elite. We're not, see, we're not, we aren't these big people. So we can say, well, this is, this is to them. This is to them. This is to them. It's always to somebody else, right? The key about uh, knowing prideful people is that they never say they're prideful, right? And the humble never think they're humble. And the problem is that by world standards, you and I are insanely wealthy, insanely powerful, insanely privileged. And we don't need God. Jesus said to the people who were standing around him when he taught them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Do any of you need to pray that today? 
Probably not. Because even if, you know, somebody comes in and freezes your bank accounts or freezes your credit cards or whatever, you probably have enough food at home. I mean, there's some cans of stuff in the back that you've been, like, not wanting to touch for, like, 10 years. But we could live off of that stuff for a week. If you're sick, your health insurance might stink. You might be paying a lot on premiums. I mean, how the, the health insurance thing is a, whole, is a hot mess. Like, I mean, what in the world? But there's, ins- there's a, such a thing called insurance and hospitals to which you can drive to. We've got two. You get to pick which one you like the best. <laughs> like, I mean, do you, do you see what I'm saying here? See, the, the root of pride is to say to God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. And the problem for you and me as people in the West with such immense privilege and wealth and free time that while I know none of us would ever say, God, I don't need you, practically we say, God, I don't need you. And we say it because we don't give him first. We don't give him first. Time, money, attention, whatever. We don't give him first. That's what worship is all about. That's what worship is all about. Remember that whole Cain and Abel story? Abel brought the first. He brought the best. That's the heart of what it is to worship God. That's the heart of what it is to walk humbly before God. I was just sitting here, I was, I was sitting there thinking about all of this and just deeply convicted as we sang, I surrender all, I could barely make the words out. But hearing you all sing it so lovely just was moving to me. I was just like, man, How do I give God first this week? How do I live as a person who doesn't have any pride, but is humbly devoted and and in need of God? How do I live that kind of life? Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he wrecks everything. There's a great little passage in Luke chapter 5. I woke up this morning actually with, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it because I could never pronounce it right, Adeste Fidelis or whatever that's, that Christmas song is. Did I say it right? I, don't, I didn't say it right. I mean, know how to say it right? Was that clo- close enough? Anyway. Uh, Chris, I had a Christmas song, of course, in my brain as I woke up. And so I was thinking about this passage as well uh, this week. This is from the song called, we call it the Magnificat. It's the, it's the song of Mary as she uh, is rejoicing at being a pregnant, unwed teenage mother in an ancient patriarchal society. And she says this. He has, that is God, has shown the strength of his arm, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, has brought down the mighty from their thrones, has exalted those of humble estate, has filled the hungry with good things, and and the rich he has sent away empty. Because the action of God in the history of man is to demonstrate that God loves that which is lowly. He loves those who walk humbly before him. And he demonstrates that in Jesus. But I'm afraid that what some of you uh, strong masculine types might think I'm describing to you is some kind of uh, weakness. Humility is not weakness. And pride is not power. Jesus, I I challenge you to sit down. It marks the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. Sit down, you could read that maybe in an hour, maybe two. 
Just read that. Just all the way through or listen to it, something. And you cannot come away with anything other than Jesus was a wrecking ball in the ancient world. Like he just blasts through everything. Their traditions, their politics, their vision of religion, what they thought about God. He just kind of comes and says, nope, not like that. And just wanders through. Lots of people go around, come around to him and he's like, ah, you guys are fakers. Get out of here. And there's a few. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if there's Pharisees around him or Sadducees around him. He doesn't care if there's military around him. He doesn't care if there's lots of people or few people. He is always doing God's will. And he is always supremely confident, not in his own power, but in God. He is always pointing people to God. And what everyone around him is looking for is empire. They're all looking for empire. They're all looking for power. They're all looking for for money. Even the disciples, even at the ascension, say to Jesus, so are you bringing forth the kingdom of Israel now? Hear the subtle difference. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of? And they're looking for the kingdom of? Right? They're looking for worldly power. They're looking for God to act like all of the other powers in the world act. Top down, crush your opponents. That's not God. That's not God. And that's not weak. There's nothing stronger than Jesus who looks at all of the powers of the world and says, I don't want anything to do with you. And they kill him for it. And he says, that's okay. I'll be raised in the third. Probably not quite that's okay. That might be a little bit reductionistic, but you get what I'm saying, right? That doesn't scare him. It doesn't stop him. And yet Jesus, in, in, in all of that gospel, as you, read, as you read the gospel of Mark, at no point is he ever going to exert his authority to the place where he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to destroy you right now. He demonstrates for us humility so that we will see the love of God. Be drawn to the love of God. Walk humbly before God because it is important to note Jesus is coming again. And in his second coming, he will judge the quick and the dead and the sons of men. And so he gives, us, he gives us a picture of that. My favorite rapper right now, well, propaganda's kind of taking over a little bit right now. I listen to a lot of show Baraka, and he has this great line in his newest album where he says, everyone wants to be royalty, and no one wants to be a servant. Is that not the perfect depiction of American culture? Everyone wants to be a star. Everyone wants their selfie to get 15,000 likes. Everybody wants to be the center of attention. But the Christian is different because the Christian is always pointing not to self but to God. Jesus said, happy are the meek. Why? They have nothing to prove. Isn't that relaxing? You don't have to prove. You don't have to defend God when he's attacked. God can defend himself. Welcome to speak your peace and to declare the truth. But, but ultimately, God will defend himself. Happy are the peacemakers. Why? Because they don't have to win everything. Isn't that exhausting? To win every argument? Isn't it far more beautiful to bring people into relationship and into peace and to, to be enjoying our lives rather than constantly at one another's throats? Happy are the poor in spirit. Because they aren't getting bloodied trying to crawl to the top. Happy are the pure because they have a clean conscience. Happy are the merciful because they have so many friends. 
If you were more merciful in your language and in your families and in your life, I guarantee more people would like you. This is, I'm speaking to myself <laughs> as well. Like that, that just struck me throughout as I was thinking of what we call the Beatitudes, that whole section I just gave you a little bit of, how Jesus says these things and how applicable it is and how humility runs underneath all of them and how pride strikes against all of them, which is why probably pride is the most central characteristics of our enemy, the devil. You notice that? That's, that's, that's from, from Genesis into the prophets where, where the prophet talks kind of metaphorically about Satan who says, I will climb to the sky. I will set my throne above. I will rule over the mountains. Uh, I will climb to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself the most high. In the garden, did God really say that? No, because God knows that if you eat from this, you will become like, you become like God. And that's what we all are after, to be gods in our own eyes, to be gods in our own lives. But the Christian is different. The Christian recognizes that we are not God and we never will be, and that there is a God. And we can walk humbly, peacefully, lovingly, fully, fully living the best kind of life, walking before God. So this morning, as we come to a close, if I have to summarize all of this, I would say this, pride bad, humility good. <laughs> it's not a very complicated sermon. It's not a very complicated message. It probably isn't even that new to many of you. But it is so hard to live out, isn't it? It's so hard to live out. Because of all the things already described, our, our own affluence, our own wealth, our own, our own busyness, our own, our own interests, and our ability to chase all of those things. And we are chasing so many things. You are chasing so many things. Let me encourage you this week to chase God. And to let God chase you. Because if I, if I, say, if I say this, this week, chase God, and that strikes something in your heart. I want you to recognize that that is God that is stirring it up in you. That is the Spirit speaking to you. That is the Spirit of God calling you home to Him. Him who can give you happiness and peace. He who can describe for you the good path and help you to walk that way. He who holds life in His hands. So I'll leave you with this passage from 1 Peter. I, I just, I loved it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you. Casting all your anxieties. Got some anxieties this morning, anyone? Can I get a witness? Some anxieties? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But be sober-minded. Be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you too 
go through trials, tribulations, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him and him alone be dominion forever and ever. And all of God's people said, let's stand as we praise our God.